You're listening to Hebrews Jesus is Better series, preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So Lord, we ask now that in the next few moments that you would speak by your spirit and through your word, that you would touch each and every heart in this room. Lord, there are heavy hearts this morning. There are troubled souls this morning. There are those who are oblivious this morning, saved and lost alike. And so, Lord, by your spirit, I pray that you'd use your word and by your power to speak to each and every situation this morning. Lord, I pray for liberty and freedom and boldness, and I pray that your word would do exactly what you will it to do this morning. Lord, transform your people, save sinners. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Thank you for being here with us. We'll start at verse number 10. For became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, He is able to help them that are tempted. We thank God for the word this morning. Two weeks ago, we were in Hebrews chapter 2, and it's so packed, these last few verses, that I thought we would revisit it again. The writer of Hebrews, encouraging a suffering and struggling church, wants them to understand that Jesus Christ himself has radically identified with them. And so we talked about what that means. First and foremost, Jesus Christ radically identifying with us means that he came to save us, that God became man, that Jesus walked this earth to pay the price for our sins. So he saves us, but also in that radically identifying with us, he also sympathizes with us. And so the writer will continue now as we speak about Christ identifying with his people, um, to talk about the benefits that you and I have in light of that. Not just salvation and not just sympathizing, but there's something that Christ does for us as well, going through what he did on this earth. So, I want to talk this morning about the power of identifying with someone. We in our culture understand how important this is. And we hear much of identifying and identity, and and we do understand it. Sometimes 
we pretend like we can identify with people when we know full well we can't. Before Becca and Katie gave birth to their first children, we had the, the boys over, we were all together, and, and like men do, they made jokes about how easy giving birth would be. Which, there's a reason God never gave that job to men. The earth would have died a long time ago. So they were joking about it. At the time, Kim had a TENS machine. The TENS machine has the electrodes that you put on someone's skin, and it shocks them, and the idea is it's to relax your muscles and to, hope, and to help you, hopefully. But there are, there are levels, A, B, and C on hers anyways, and 1 through 10. And so we thought, if you can truly identify with your wife's, let's give it a go. And so each boy was hooked up. Their mother was in charge of the levels. Just never, ever a good idea. Never. She might look sweet, but she is evil. And so it started. And at first, like, oh, uncomfortable, uncomfortable, right? It's on their abdomen, uncomfortable. And then as it, as it progressed, and the thing really, it beat you. Remember, Katie, how, how fun that was, Becca? Um, and, and after about to 8 to 9, because they all wanted to get to 10, we heard sounds, involuntary actions, and words coming out of those boys, right? And the truth is, they could say, we identify with you, but they had no clue whatsoever. So there are times we pretend, and we know. There are other times that we innately know that we could never identify with people. One of the privileges that I have in ministry, of course, preaching the word, God has called me to do that. But every month I have the opportunity to meet with our widows. And we sit around a table. And the truth is, I can give them scripture. We can pray for one another. I can encourage them. But when they start to speak, I cannot say to them, I understand exactly what you're going through. Because I don't. And there's a beautiful thing that happens as I sit back and watch this all unfold. That the widows in our church will begin to speak and say, I know. I know where you're at. I've been there. This was where I was at a year or two years or five years. And it's a beautiful thing to see them identifying with other women saying, I know, I feel, I understand. And you just watch it happen. Which reminds all of us, when you don't understand, don't say that you do. And if you're at a loss of what to say, there's some real wisdom Say nothing. Say, I'm praying for you. I don't know. I love you. I'm here for you. So there's sometimes, innately, we know that that's way out of our league. We're not there. We don't know. We can pray and sympathize, but we're not there. But there are times for all of us that we connect with people because we have been there. We have done that. We have gone through that experience. And it can be a powerful thing. 
I always feel blessed. Now listen to me. That I've come from a broken home. And not the blessing and brokenness at all. But in the ability to sit across from someone who is trying to make sense of a life that is broken and say, I know. I know. And it is a blessing. And so we have these levels. As a pastor, I sit sometimes with other pastors, and I will sit with missionaries, and they'll begin to speak. And, and here are the two reoccurring topics. Number one, um, the burden of delivering a message. Now, some of you honestly think that I work one hour a week, and you show up, and you open the book, and it's there. That's not how it works. And if it works that way, I've missed it for a long time now, right? There is a heaviness with pastors delivering the word. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who was preaching, and after he stepped down, he sat in a seat. I think it was next to Alexander, and Alexander said to him, how do you feel? And he said, I feel relieved. And he said, what do you mean? He said, I was able to deliver the word, and then... Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, I believe that in the delivery of the word of God, it is the closest that any man can get to, to the idea of travail and birth that a woman goes through for a child. I have to tell you something. By Sunday, 12-15, don't tell me anything, because I'm done. I'm done. There, there is nothing and there's a burden in the word. And I'm not, I'm not crying, I'm not complaining, I'm just telling you, when I hear a pastor say that, I know what he's talking about. Or we talk about the burden of people and shepherding. You do know that pastors have burdens as well. With their own families, their own children, their own issues and troubles and struggles. And then, if they're shepherding people, they have the burdens of a church. And so, when I hear a pastor speak and weep at a table across from me talking about wanting to quit and being done and no one understands, I say to him, I know. And again, I'm not looking for sympathy. I don't need you to pat me on the back today. I'm just making the point that we all connect with people on some level of identifying with them. And it's powerful. And so, the writer of Hebrews is talking to a church who is suffering, who is struggling, who is weary, who they're ready to quit and chuck it all in. And in the backdrop of suffering, not just theirs, but in Jesus Christ, he tells them there is one who identifies with you and this profoundly deep identification understanding it and grasping it will give you the strength that you need to carry on. And so, this morning, here's where we're headed. We're going to talk about Christ's identity with us and we identifying in him. And then there are three things, at least, there are three in our text, about what Christ says in his identifying with us that I believe this morning, no matter who you are, will strengthen and encourage you in your walk with Christ in the situation you find yourself in today. So let's look back at the text this morning. Look with me at verse number 10. 
it tells us again that the captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. This captain or pioneer is speaking of Jesus Christ as the one who is first, the one who stays in the lead, the one who is ahead of us. And he says there, by means of suffering, and think about this, when he says that Jesus suffered, it is the fullest extent of suffering from his birth and incarnation through his entire life. Our Lord suffered. He suffered not just physically. He suffered emotionally. Do you know that his entire life, he would be plagued with this idea that he was an illegitimate child? And in that culture, it was a shame. And he heard it, I'm sure, his whole life. He would suffer betrayal. He would suffer misunderstanding by friends, being marginalized. He would understand being left and forsaken. He suffered those things. And not only that, crucifixion, which we get the word excruciating from, telling us that we can't fathom the pain that he experienced. And so this was the means, the fullest extent of suffering that equipped Jesus to be our Savior and High Priest, which, by the way, the High Priest is the theme of the book of Hebrews. And then he says in verse 11, both he that sanctifies and those who are sanctified are of one. And Jesus identifies with humanity. He took on flesh, and he was the one and the only one that could reconcile humanity to God. And this blows my mind in, in verse 11. Part B, he is not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters. Listen, there have been times in my life growing up in Cleveland that I was ashamed of my brothers. And they were ashamed of me, big time, right? And when the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to know something, Jesus Christ identifies with you in so much that... He is not ashamed to say, that one is mine. That sister is my sister. He identifies with us. It's a powerful thing. It's an amazing thing, especially in light, as we know from Hebrews chapter 1, who Christ is. He is the Son. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the perfect image of the Father. He is the one who angels minister to him. He was the one that spoke the world into existence. He is the one that will rule from heaven as the sovereign king and on earth. And he says, I'm not ashamed of you. And he calls us brothers and sisters. It's an amazing thing. Christ is not ashamed of us. Christ identifies with us. And Christ is, believer, your identity. Andrew just read earlier, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Christ, who is our life. And the believer finds our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's face it, in the world that we live in today, this idea of identity, we hear it all the time. It's important to us. We, we hear it incessantly all over the place. And the truth of the matter is, every human being on this planet is seeking their own righteousness. Now, now, don't just, okay, yeah, that's a religious thing. 
Yes and no. Righteousness literally means right standing. It has the idea of seeking favor, being well accepted, being included, getting a right verdict. And the truth of the matter is, every human being on our planet is looking for righteousness, some kind of acceptance, some kind of verdict that tells them they have value, they have worth, they're important, they're accepted. Ultimately, we know that we must find the righteousness of God and be accepted by him. But we all get pulled into this. Let me give you the example that comes to my mind most frequently about our longing to be accepted, to be welcomed in, to get a good verdict. Social media. Right? What's the reason, and you don't have to answer out loud unless you want to confess, what's the reason this morning that we constantly change our profile pictures and filter them? Right? You know, there's some people that their profile picture every year looks younger and younger and younger. And the truth is, if you were to meet them on the street, you wouldn't even recognize them. It's like, oh my goodness, is that you? You look horrible. Because, right? And I'm not, I'm not thinking of anybody in mind right now. This is not for you. I'm just telling you that we do these things. And we constantly update. We constantly show our gourmet meals and our well-behaved children and our vacations. And again, I'm not opposed to those things. I understand those things. I like to see what my family and friends are doing. But there's something within us that we are crying out that we want our own righteousness. We want to be accepted. We want to be welcomed. We want a good verdict by everyone around us. And the more provocative we can be, the more voyeuristic our audience becomes. We are a voyeuristic nation, always looking into everyone else's life because ours stink. What we're looking into is not reality. This morning, I'm not just talking about teenagers, adults. Yeah, those teenagers and their pics and their posts and no, and nor am I just talking about women this morning. And again, I have no one in mind here, no one. But I find it interesting that a man can be in the washer with his shirt off and decide it would be a good idea to take a picture of himself and post it, right? Why do you do that? Because, number one, like all men, you think you look good. Men can wake up in the morning and look terrible and think, hmm, not bad. Right? Women never do that. I was like, ugh, yuck. That's, that's the reality. But we do that. What happens is it becomes an addiction. Do you know those likes that we get help your brain produce dopamine that makes you feel good? That's why when you close the computer, 10 seconds later you want to open it again because of that high that you got. Here's a problem. There's this endless quest for acceptance, for righteousness, for a good verdict, for being included or welcomed into some group. And it only produces guilt because you know it's not true. You, you mean every day you have a four-course meal? That's fantastic. Never hot dogs? Never grilled cheese, macaroni, craft dinner? Never that? But you always look so stunning like you're 20 years younger? You know you've aimed and missed, or anxiety. How long can you keep that up? 
How long can we keep on striving to be accepted by those around us? The only real verdict that will ever matter is the verdict from God. And in the end, if all we are trying to do is establish our own righteousness and our own approval from men, it will ultimately end up in the grave. Someday, your pearly whites, your deep blue eyes, your flawless skin will be a skull with holes in it. Remember, we must die. And so, this constant seeking our own righteousness, our own approval, all the likes, getting into the right group or the right crowd, it is meaningless, it ends up in the grave, and if we are trying to establish our own righteousness with God, we will gravely be disappointed. Because we don't get the right verdict from him or acceptance from him from anything we do. Listen, it's not just, yeah, because we're bad people. No. Even our own righteousnesses, the good that we do when used to try to get God's approval, whether it's praying, attending church, giving money, right, working in the community, the Bible tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And that term is graphic and disgusting. What God tells us is, listen, there is no acceptance coming to me by what you can do. You can do nothing because even our best efforts are still self-centered, prideful, and half-hearted. But there is absolute acceptability in Jesus Christ this morning. We can quit with the endless struggle for this righteousness that we want, for this acceptance we want. We find it in Christ. He died and paid our sins, his passive obedience, and he lived the perfect life that we could never live. And his righteousness now, his right standing, his acceptance, becomes my acceptance when I trust in him. And this is a glorious thing, because th this has ramifications not just for eternity, but for every day. Have you ever lived a week in your Christian life and thought, that stunk? Not just a week, right? Oh my goodness, I don't know that I could pray. I don't know that God would hear me. He must hate me right now. Listen to me. That is not how God sees us when Christ is our Savior, because when he sees me now, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's what he sees. And so I don't have to beat myself. I, yeah, I blow it, I fall, I repent, I get up. But the truth is, this is the gospel. The determining factor for my acceptance is not in my past or present condition. It is in Christ's past and present condition. And so I am safe. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It's a marvelous truth. All we see is ourself and others in their, in their frailty and flaws, but he sees the fulfillment. We find our righteousness in Jesus Christ. Now, you can take that home. You can think about that. You can, you can examine your own heart this weekend where you're trying to find acceptance, but I'm telling you, believer, you have it in Christ. And if you're lost this morning, you will never have it outside of Christ, ever. 
can come to church until you die. You can give away all your money, but you cannot atone for your sins. Jesus Christ has done that. Now, what I find interesting this morning is this. For those who have trusted Christ, for those who have repented, for those who have called upon the name of the Lord and have turned and trusted him, how Christ now is our identity and our acceptance. The writer of Hebrews gives us three statements from the Old Testament that are ascribed to Jesus Christ. And they really are amazing. And they're ascribed to Jesus, remember, in the context of suffering. The whole context of this chapter is suffering. And that he's identifying with us. And I want you to see now this morning that in this identification, yes, he has saved us. Yes, he sympathizes with us. But there are several things that Christ gives us now because he walked among us. He suffered for us. And he understands all of this. Died, was buried, and rose again. And now he has something to say for every one of us this morning who are struggling, who are suffering, who are weary and worn, looking to Jesus. First, I find it amazing, actually, that how the writer uses Psalm 22 in Isaiah chapter 8. He says, this is, these are the words of Christ. And it reminds us that every story in the book whispers his name. Every one of them. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Do you even understand how unbelievable that is? That from Genesis to Revelation, there is one hero and it is Jesus Christ. If all scripture points to Jesus, then you and I ought to ponder him more often. Because it's all about him. And so he comes, and here's what he says. The first one is uh, in verse number 12. This comes from Psalm 22. Since Christ suffered, since he identified with us, he now says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. I find it interesting that Jesus says to us, in light of the incarnation, in light of the suffering he faced, that now my brothers and sisters can see God clearly. We see him clearly because the Father has made himself known through the Son. If you want to know what Jesus is like, or what God is like, we look to Jesus Christ. And Christ has revealed the Father. Those who know him can see him clearly. Philip says, uh, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be happy. It will suffice us. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so Christ reveals to his children, to you and I, the truth of God. And it's in knowing this truth of God that the first point is this, that Jesus leads us in a hymn. He says, I will declare who God is, and I will lead my people in a hymn of praise. Because of Christ's incarnation this morning, we have a hymn. And we can sing the right way because God has been revealed. We know him not just in spirit, but in truth. And you need both. God is not who you think he is. God is who he said he was and is. And Jesus reveals that. And so now we come this morning, no matter what we've experienced this week, no matter what we're facing, no matter the knowns or the unknowns, knowing that Christ who identifies with us gives us a hymn. He gives us a song that we can sing the beauties and the glories of our God. And you need spirit and truth. I think it was um, Alistair Begg who said, a church that has all spirit and no truth blows up. A church that has all truth and no spirit dries up. 
but a church that has the spirit and the truth grows up. And so now we come to our Savior, and he leads us in a hymn. Calvin called him Christ, the chief conductor of our hymns, and he is the one that shows us God clearly. We see the God who is uh, his magnificent, his sovereignty, um, all that entails the God of heaven is revealed by Jesus Christ. And so Christ now leads us in our hymns of praise. That in our suffering and in our struggle, Jesus identifies and says, listen, let me lead you in a hymn. And this God gives us songs in the darkest night because he lived, he died, was buried, and rose again. He identifies with us. Jesus Christ gives us a hymn. Well, there's a second thing. The next phrase tells us from Isaiah chapter 8, it says, verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. The writer is saying, these are the words of Jesus. I, I found Isaiah 8 fascinating because Isaiah 7, we know about, right, this messianic promise that in Isaiah 7, a virgin would conceive. Isaiah 9, a son would be given. And smack dab in the middle is Isaiah chapter 8, which talks about lots of things like the foundation we have, um, the sure rock that we have, Emmanuel. And then it tells us that Jesus says in the midst of his suffering, I will put my trust in him. This morning, believer, Christ not only gives you a hymn to sing of praise for the God who you serve, who will bring you through, but he gives us hope. While undergoing persecution of the flesh and suffering, he says, I will put my trust in him. This church suffered. And this church suffers. And so did he. This church was weak, and we are weak. And so was he. This church in Hebrews must depend on God, just as Jesus Christ did, and we must do the same. Listen to me. We're talking about life in the real world, in a fallen world. There is sorrow. There is suffering. There is brokenness. That is real life in the trenches this morning. And in the midst of all this, we can have a hymn and we can have hope. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, not only in his holiness and in his joy, but in his suffering. And you and I are to take up our cross and follow him. Under the captain of our salvation, let us war a good warfare, endure unto the end, and trust our father like our older brother did. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And in our suffering, the Savior who identified with us reminds us that we still have a hymn to sing and we have hope. Listen to me. In the midst of your suffering now, God is not out to destroy you, he is out to strengthen you. And listen, I've been on the other end of this for a long time now. We just had the Hoffmans with us last week. And I want to thank our church for your love and your concern and your prayers and your gifts. They feel loved by our people. You remember Kevin Colleen lost their granddaughter, Colette, last year. And two years ago, as we sat down with them, listen to me, from what they've gone through now, they are different people. And they're not shipwrecked. They're not destroyed. They're hurting. They're suffering. They're struggling. But we have seen God through this suffering change them. 
change them into the image of the Son. And so my brother or sister, this, this Jesus identifies. He gives us a song. He gives us a hymn. And he gives us hope. God wastes nothing. And this morning, he is not wasting your suffering at all. He is going to use that to transform you into the image of your older brother. And then here's the last quote that the writer gives us. It's found again in Isaiah 8. It says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And this is fascinating to me. Before I get there, um, when I was a kid in the 70s, my parents went through a divorce. And so my mom was raising three boys. And in our home, we had, um, well, we had an 8-track player. Remember the 8-track players? Big. And there was a song that played constantly in my home. It was a song by uh, Gloria Gaynor. Once I was afraid, I was petrified, not knowing how I could live this life without you by my side. It goes on and says, and you, you'll know it in a minute if you don't know it already. Um, um, weren't you the one who tried to hurt me with goodbye? You think I'd crumble? You think I'd lay down and die? Oh, no, not I. I will survive. For as long as I know how to love, I know I'll stay alive. I've got all my life to live. I've got all my love to give. I'll survive. I will survive. Remember that? Okay, remember that? All right, good. Right? right. And, and that played constantly in my home. I, the, the truth is, I was studying that, that. I've been singing that song all week long. I will survive. Right? And it was, it was our mantra that's like, hey, we've been hurt. We're going to survive. What happens here in Isaiah chapter 8 is amazing because it's literally Isaiah speaking whose name means Yahweh is salvation. He has two boys. The first one is Mayor Shallow Hashbez. You think your name is bad? Mayor Shallow Hashbez. But his name means that the prey is hastening. And this was a sign to Isaiah and the people that your oppressors, Israel in the north and Syria, their time is coming. It will end. You will be delivered. And he had another son named Shirjazup, which meant a remnant shall return. And you can picture Isaiah standing now with his children, his arms around both of them, saying, in a way of defiance, no matter what's happening in, in Judah now, no matter the sorrow we see, we will survive. We'll, we'll survive. Christ gives us a hymn. Christ gives us hope in our suffering. But Christ gives us a home. And it's in light of that home that we know this morning, no matter what we face or no matter what we go through, we will survive. We will survive. And this is a hope. And Jesus says, I and my children, I've come through it. I've walked through death. I've been in a tomb. I rose victorious. And all those who know me will follow suit. We will survive. We'll survive. We will not be trapped in the hopelessness of this world. No, we will not. Why? Because we're strong? No. That's not why. But Romans 8.36 says, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. 
we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, my dear brother and sister in Christ, you have one who identifies with you. It is God the Son. And not only does he give us salvation and sympathize, but he comes alongside and says, listen, in your suffering, as in my suffering, there's a hymn for you to sing. The glory and the greatness, the power and the plan and the providence and the sovereignty of God. You can sing a hymn. You can have hope. This trouble will not destroy you. This suffering will not be wasted. God has a plan and purpose, and he will bring beauty from the ashes of our life. He's done it over and over again. And then he says, listen, you have a home. You will survive. I and the children which the Lord has given me, the prey is hastening, a remnant will be saved, and we will be home. And so, wherever you find yourself this morning, let me encourage you. There is one who knows. He does know. And he shouts to you this morning. There's a hymn, even in the darkest night of the soul. Right? There's a hymn. You can sing praise to this God who loved us and who saved us and washed us in his blood. There is hope that he's up to something. He is doing something in my life. There's a home for his children. We will survive. And so, be encouraged, my brother and sister. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, I beg you, do not seek your own righteousness. It will end in eternal destruction, separated from God, because all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There is one who lived the perfect life. There is one who died in your place. There is one who said, call upon me. And when you call upon him and repent, turning from your old ways, your old sin, your old idols, and trusting in him, you get his righteousness. There's not a better deal in town that when God sees you now, he sees perfection. If you don't have that, you need it. Call upon the name of the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you identify with us that the Son knows. He knows not as God alone, but he knows experimentally. I thank you for the hope that we have with him in a home. I pray that you would encourage our hearts today to press on, knowing that we can trust you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do the work that you intend to work through your word today. I trust that to you. Lord, I pray that you bring hope and encouragement to your people. I pray that you bring strength for another day. I pray that you bring new perspective in their lives. If there's one here that doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day that they'd quit trusting in their own righteousness. That the only verdict that matters is the one that comes from you. And you've already said there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. May they trust Jesus today. We thank you in his name. Amen.